You're listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalent. Tune in to hear thought leaders, operators, and visionaries share their expertise, lessons learned, and best practices for how to prepare for the rapidly changing world of work. Now, let's get Radically Agile. I'm so excited to be joined this morning by Bill Kerr, professor and co-director of the Managing the Future of Work initiative at Harvard Business School, and also author of the recent book, The Gift of Global Talent, How Migration Shapes Business, Economy, and Society. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Bill, thanks so much for being here. We um, here at the Radically Agile podcast like to have conversations with folks like you who are looking kind of at some of the macro trends that are impacting the way organizations and people are engaging with each other um, and how innovation and uh, disruption are factoring into the, some of those changes. So we're thrilled to have an expert Very like you topics. this morning. It is. It is. And there's a lot to talk about. So let's get right to it. Let, let's actually start with your work at, at Harvard and the Future of Work initiative. Um, you are leading some of the cutting-edge research on how organizations, companies are adapting to the forces around them in how they're managing their workforce and how they're managing their business. It would be interesting for our audience uh, to hear just a little bit more about your focus at the initiative. Sure. Uh, let me go my brand police mode here, which is uh, people often call it the Future of Work Initiative. But what we've done at Harvard Business School is create Managing the Future of Work Initiative. And what I, the way I characterize this sometimes is we, we can all get the emails that come in from the consulting companies or from Axios or from others that are describing either this wonderful utopia that may lie ahead or this terrible dystopia that may lie ahead or something that kind of looks like it does today, but we're all doing different types of jobs. So a lot of kind of thoughts about what the future of work might look like uh, or what types of artificial intelligence, advanced technology, gig economy, demographics, those trends that might be driving it. What we're trying to do at the school is take, a, take one step further down that path and say, we're not going to predict for you where artificial intelligence is going to go. But what we want to do is understand how leading companies are thinking about AI in their work how they're adapting their organizations to that, and what policymakers and business leaders can learn from their examples. This is a, a different type of initiative than a typical one at a university. Uh, university models often been set up around sort of individual excellence and a professor trying to work to you know, create some great research, then hope that people actually listen to it or, or read about it and have very long-term impact. What we're trying to do with MFW is also just bring to the forefront some of the things that we're doing at the school right now. So sure. across many different faculty members and uh, many different programs and units and so forth, what are the ways that we can help uh, provide uh, insights into this conversation? Uh, okay. We're not going to cover everything, but what can we, uh, based upon all the research that's being done at, at Harvard and MIT and elsewhere, how can we sort of have a, a role in that? So, so is it true that killer robots are coming to take all of our jobs, or is that is that more mythology than, than fact? Well, I'm more of a technological <laughs> optimist. Okay. Uh, I, I think that we are going to have an enormous transition ahead, but I also see a future where there will be jobs and there will be meaningful work uh, for, for people. Uh, there are questions about can the technology get ahead of itself? Do we have the ethical uh, sort of considerations and boundaries sort of appropriately thought about? And from both the worker side and also from the ethical side, one of the challenges we face is that the pace of transformation today is much faster than it has been in previous um, 
previous technological revolutions, where you might have a couple of generations that are spanning that transition, which allows you to think about the ethics a little bit more, allows you to have uh, old traditional schooling methods sort of help update the workforce for the new models. Uh, there is some displacement, but it's, it's sort of taken over a long period of time. We're going to have to handle those things in a much faster cadence coming ahead. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. So you, you mentioned the, the, the pace of change and the pace of, of transformation. Let's talk for a second on, on how that's impacting companies. Um, yep. I imagine that uh, companies are something you care a lot about at Harvard Business School and you think a lot about. Um, let, let's talk, because we hear in our work a, a lot about how um, companies are struggling to keep up with the disruption happening in their industry, with the pressure to compete faster, and to do that while it's harder and harder to access skills. So it seems consistent with, with how you, you see the world. How, how can companies and workers and, frankly, the, the public at large, how can they start to manage for some of these dramatic changes in kind of the uh, macroeconomic, macroeconomy around them? Well, it's obviously a very complicated question that brought in many different uh, types of actors uh, into this, everything from our education system over to the, the companies themselves. Let, let's, let's start with the companies. I think there, you have to begin with an understanding of how can uh, advanced technology and AI, we'll just take that as, as one segment, <laughs> how can that be impacting uh, the, the work that we do? And there are, it's at times confusing because there's different levels at which organizations are being impacted. Uh, and one of our sort of case studies comes from a company called Vodafone, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, many listeners of this podcast may be uh, Vodafone customers because there's about half a billion of them around the world. Uh, but it's a leading uh, a European and African uh, cellular provider that also has operations uh, in, in other regions of the world as well. And what we're doing in, the, in that case study is walking through and understanding how is Vodafone sort of being influenced by some advanced technologies and how is it having to reshape its work. And what you first find is that there's this level of simply our operations can get better. We used to get 8% cost reduction per year. Now we can make that 12%. And here's how. And here's the way that we're going to interact with customers a little bit differently. Or here's how we can, you know, shave some costs off of this billing transformation. But it's a very blocking, tackling kind of, uh, kind of work. Then there's a, a second layer that sits on top of that, which is how, have my, how is my management going to have to, to change in this environment? And one of the sort of classic examples that the CEO gives is uh, the, the data scientists are talking to him about this new marketing sort of algorithms and kind of some of the predictions it's making. It says, you know, the last thing you should ever do is let the marketeers touch the predictions because they're just going to mess it up. <laughs> and, of course, he's sort of asking about this. Well, then what am I supposed to do with the marketeers? You know, like, right, like right. Uh, and, and, and I think that's reflective of a broader um, uh challenge that we're going to have is where we've traditionally done a lot of things based upon judgment and accumulated expertise. And first, there's going to be things that the computer can do faster and better than us. And that's going to be a, a transformation of the skill sets that are required. It's also going to have a, a lot of issues for leaders as they think about how they manage that transition. Because you could say, okay, but are we really sure that the computer understands everything that we need to have here? Sure. You can imagine at the end, yes, it will. But along the way, there's a lot of um, 
of questions get raised. As one example, in, in one of the applications of Vodafone, they're looking at hiring, and they're using artificial intelligence in hiring, kind of in, in screening applications and so forth. And they're finding about a 70% overlap between the recommendations of what the, the algorithm suggests and then what their own people through their history and their work and being in HR and so forth have suggested. And so there's a lot of focus then about what's that 30%? Mm -hmm. Where are we you know, in disagreement and can we start to understand why? Could have been that there was a bias on the part of the people that should be corrected. It could also be that there were things that we, we missed about uh, uh, or that the computer did not understand about either laws or hiring or other kinds of things that need to be brought uh, to the surface. Mm -hmm. So you go from this operational level to this, how's the management going to change? And then at the highest level for the organization, trying to think about society and the implications and say that you know we are in most of the countries we're working in, one of the leading employers. And it can't just be that we can switch from one model to another model or you know, make a, a, a radical layoff in this uh, country and, and hire over here. We have to think about these overall obligations uh, and how we're sort of going to roll out this process. So leading companies have to be thinking about at, at many different levels, which makes this very complicated. Sure. You know, I one of the things um, that struck me, I, I read that case study, um, one of the things that struck me was how uh, – the impact on culture that 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 really needs to happen for a company the size of Vodafone to make the kinds of changes that that the CEO is talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how how CEOs and and others should be thinking about impact on culture as they're adapting their business for this new reality? I think there are um, there are several approaches people are taking, and I, I guess at this point we don't have clarity as to if there is a one you know best practice that everybody should be adopting sure. or should you just understand uh, the range in the case of uh, uh, of Vodafone a lot of the cultural change is being driven uh, through the um, through the through the company through HR and through traditional stuff that happens at the top uh, they talk about sort of the ways that they expose their executives to Silicon Valley, or they make everyone go through, uh, I think it's their top, the 250 people are in a three-day workshop where they have to program a chat bot for ordering coffee. Huh. Uh, and it's about getting their hands dirty with sure. technology. Uh, or even to small things like they assign them what they call a digital ninja, <laughs> which is supposed to you know young millennial to I try to- title. Yeah, exactly, to help them uh, get better. Or they have to order their own phones. So they have to, you know, they, they've removed a lot of privileges to try yeah. to speed this up uh, all the way down uh, through the company. But you get a, a sense in Vodafone that uh, as a legacy business, there are places that we can move faster or slower. We have to allow for a lot of pilots, find the things that's going to work and then work to scale them up. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's going to require sometimes going faster in some places than others. And other times we're going to create a bigger initiative that wraps all this up and then makes a, a step change. Then you can go uh, another one of the European companies that we looked at is uh, ING, mm -hmm. the very large, the very large uh, uh, bank. ING uh, at its um, Netherlands headquarters uh, and in the Netherlands operations went much more radical in their approach, and they basically said we have got to go all in on this cultural transformation. We can't take it in steps. So there was, uh, you know, after doing some research, doing some thoughts, uh, so forth, they, they went agile across the entire Netherlands uh, headquarter operations. Uh, that involved simultaneously everyone reapplying for a job uh, in the organization. 75% uh, 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 of the people were rehired, 25% were not. 
Uh, they did a lot of efforts to then uh, make the workplace more attractive to younger digital kind of talent uh, mm -hmm. on this front uh, and then you know really work to change their work processes uh, around being more customer facing in a in a digital environment which for them and uh, as banks are, are now mostly interacting with customers through mobile and omni-channel presences well, it was vitally important so in their in their case they would say the only way we made this cultural transformation was that we did all of this at once amazing and we had this sort of big over you know wasn't over it, the, the implementation at the end was overnight or over right. a weekend, yeah. but there was a planning process going into it. But we have to make this whole step change in order to adopt this new culture that we need. It's that is um, that really struck me in in the ING story because a lot of companies struggle to even experiment to even get a pilot off the ground because in, in a lot of ways they're just built to kill new things or slow them down. And so ING's approach to do it all at once was was, was really striking to me. Uh, any sense for how it's been going with them? Uh, they have been, uh, they've been happy with the results. Great. Uh, the CEO of, of ING Netherlands, uh, Vincent van de Boort, uh, has come to class and shared uh, their first faster uh, to, to release new products to the market which was one of their one of, one of their essential goals. Uh, like many times when you move to a faster release cycle or MVP, sometimes the numbers are, are harder to kind of say is like, we used to do it three times a year, now we do it 300 times a year. It's not clear it's 100 times improvement, but they are much faster at, at doing this. They talk about how they're much more attractive to um, to uh, the employee base that they're after because people can more directly see the impact of their of their work. Mm -hmm. So they can actually show somebody, here's the mortgage app that I worked on. We did this last week. Look, the change was implemented and was taken out to, uh, you know, to customers. Uh, we've gotten positive. They, they, that feedback channel and their proximity to the customers uh, has helped them, and they've been able to, uh, uh, to recruit better talent. And overall, like the NPS scores, net promoter scores, and so forth about the new model have, have been positive uh, for them. That's great. Well, we will we will keep our eye on on, yeah. on on the results there. Yeah, the biggest thing that they're have been working on over this last year is not just to do it in one country, but to begin doing it with cross border teams, hmm. so that they have because they're again a multi country uh, setting. Uh, they have teams that stretch between Belgium and Netherlands mm -hmm. or over to Germany, and to what degree can they use this sort of agile methodology at scale? and have people in different places and, and operating um, in, in a cross-border type setting. So I, I think that's, that's a, great, a great segue for us. Skills uh, have come up a couple of times and access to talent has come up a couple of times. And then the ING case touches on the importance of cross-border skills. So, so let's actually pull up and talk a little bit about your new book, uh, The Gift of Global Talent, How Migration Shapes Business, Economy, and Society. In the book, you, um, you talk a lot about the global race for talent and specifically the role of immigration on U.S. competitiveness and, and, and other things. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about your new book. Yeah, so the book, I, I would say, is about one-third economics, one-third business, and one-third policy slash uh, a little bit of politics here. And the starting point is not just a pure U.S. focus, but just kind of at the level of, as we think about the knowledge economy and what's emerged, the ability of us to match 
the very best talent to places where they can be educated, trained, where their skills can be put to the most productive uses is very powerful. And that's unlocked a lot of uh, progress and opportunity and innovation uh, in the United States and in other, uh, in other countries. What we've seen of this is a, a number of impacts for the rate of innovation that's happening or technological change, for the formation of things like talent clusters that have become so influential uh, in uh, business uh, space uh, these days, ranging from a Silicon Valley or a Berlin or a Boston um, over to a, to a Shanghai. And then how companies and countries are attempting to, to draw that talent in. The United States has historically been, and even today, has been a, 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 a central magnet to, to draw a lot of that talent in. So the book tries to understand how that's impacted our country uh, and also what are the challenges that the U.S. faces for maintaining this position in, in, in the coming years. Are there, are there some examples that um, obviously that, that you have in the book that you could point out to our listeners today of, of how um, openness to immigration historically in the U.S. has impacted the United States economy? like some, some yeah, great maybe, examples maybe. people might be able to connect with. Sure, many examples. Uh, so one is just to understand the, the level of, of impact. Uh, the United States has, let's think just the Nobel Prize winners, it often comes sure. up. Uh, uh, the United States over the last, um, since the 1970s, won about two-thirds of Nobel Prizes, and about half of those Nobel Prize winners are, are foreign-born coming That's to the amazing. United States. Wow. Uh, and if you ever want to look at like a balance of trade, uh, <laughs> so far we've had well more than 100 uh, people come to the United States to do their Nobel Prize winning work. We've only had four people that were born in America leave to go somewhere else uh, to do that type of work. Moved to invention. Uh, in 1975, about one out of every 12 inventors in America was foreign born. Today that number is about one out of every three and a half. It's been across many different technological fields, uh, uh, in, particularly in advanced technologies. It goes all the way down to college educators, to the, the students that are in our classrooms uh, today. Some of the impacts are, are very visible or quite obvious um, in the you know, kind of things like those patent statistics or sure. you know, uh, entrepreneurship and similar. Sometimes, uh, though, the numbers can be a surprise. We want to think about the economic impact. So one statistic that people have found sort of mind-boggling at times is that today, one out of every 12 patents in America is either invented or co-invented by an Indian or Chinese ethnic inventor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, we're, 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 wow, that two is specific. In one area, it's one out of every 12. And so what has been the and, – and go back to 1975 is about one out of every 220, so patents. So, so it's, it's been an unbelievable increase. Mm. And you think about, like, w some of the tensions that our country faces, uh, w what does one out of every 12 patents mean? That's the combined patenting output of the bottom 28 states of America in terms of innovation. So you now have two ethnic groups in one very large cluster that are producing the same as more than half of the states in, uh, in, in the country. And that's not all good or bad, like, but th that, that's sure. one way that it's just, a fact. Um, it's just a fact, whereas historically, during the 60s, 70s, 80s, our country was actually spreading invention out more. We had the company town, like Rochester, New York, or we were doing our work in the suburban office parks or similar. Today, what we're finding, uh, in large part driven by global talent, is a very strong reconcentration of in innovative work into a handful of places, uh, which are both very powerful for the U.S. economy, but also create the, the, the strains and the tensions that we discuss. Wow. So, so you, um, 
and, and that example actually is one is one reason why I think you say this in the book. But you're pretty clear in the book that that talent is the world's most precious resource. T- tell us a little bit about about why you use those those words, and um, and maybe also why companies should be thinking of talent that way as well. Sure. We, I, I, and the other ones people often kind of raise would be water or oil sure. or, or data uh, often comes yep. up uh, uh, today as, as well. In the knowledge economy, uh, and we're going to sort of think about technology-enabled businesses and software and, 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 and similar, in, in a knowledge economy, what, the way I describe it is that the, the ingredients have become ever more about talent. So let's go back and think about the automobile industry. That was a preeminent industry uh, for the United States. Detroit was one of America's leading cities for much of the of the last uh, century. Uh, and we had a, a very sort of strong, uh, initially, export uh, sort of, of automobiles and, and so forth. So it had a lot of the underlying ingredients of being an economic uh, cluster. But it was not a, a, a type of industry or a setting where you could just forever expand the role of Detroit. And part of the, that is the, the, the ingredients for making the automobile industry were actually uh, uh, complex. There was a lot of things that had to go into it. You needed to have a factory. You needed to have a lot of semi-skilled workers to work in the factory, a lot of raw material inputs. You also need to have a lot of talented either managers or car designers or others that were working in that environment. But you couldn't just blow this thing up uh, and and increase it ten times because mm-hmm. you have to increase all the other all the other pieces uh, ten times. Sure. If you contrast that today with driverless cars and the efforts to enter into that um, uh, into that space of autonomous vehicles, that's become much more of a software-driven world, uh, and it's one that there's a lot more of about advanced technologies and sensors. And really, what you find increasingly is that. The sort of what we most need in kind of the background to make this work are talented people working with each other around that, and that is going to allow a lot more concentration of um, of activity, a lot more concentration of, of business focus mm-hmm. into certain places, uh, because the it's sort of like the only ingredient now that we really need is our talented people, sure. and we can sort of more rapidly expand that without uh, overcoming constraints. So when I look around and you hear about a bank, you know, Goldman Sachs will tell you today they're a technology company. You go to industrial equipment makers, they're thinking about how do that, you know, with the Internet of Things and these other stuff, how are we going to establish our software presence or our technology leadership? You go back over to examples like uh, Ford and GM entering into the autonomous vehicle space and now competing with the likes of, 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 of a Google. Mm-hmm. You're going to find many different industries are today affected in ways that that sort of premium that's placed in the talent becomes more vital, and how do they access that and utilize it? So while companies are, are feeling the pressure to, to access talent in those, in those ways and to think about talent in those ways, um, at the same time, there's a lot of turbulence around the immigration topic in the United States, a lot of energy in the immigration conversation. That's a pleasant way of trying yeah. to put it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't want to sidetrack us into a political conversation. We'd need about five more podcasts, but, um, but maybe it, just for our audience, if you could, if you could touch on the, the like, the, in this knowledge talent category, how is the immigration system um, uh, functioning in the U.S. today, and and what are the challenges or opportunities given sure. those? And that's where the kind of the one third of the book comes. That's from the from the policy side. 
One of the things I want to begin with, and we won't have enough time to deeply talk about it right now, is to recognize the U.S. has, an, for employment-based work, what we call an employer-driven system, meaning that high-skilled talent coming into the country is principally being sponsored and supported by a company that is recruiting them in. I'm going to use Microsoft as just a generic example. But if uh, Microsoft uh, is the lead actor in the U.S. play, they say, I want to go out and I want to, you know, have Rich come to the United States. I'm going to support him and and offer him the job and and apply for a visa on his behalf. Whereas other countries use uh, points-based systems or other approaches for uh, allowing a migrant to say, I want to go to Canada. Uh, and mm-hmm. I want to uh, work at Canada. Here's, you know, the number of points that my education background gives me, or that my uh, the ability to speak French gives me, or that I have, uh, you know, a, a, a guaranteed job offer from a Canadian company. So you have to sort of apply and, and get an, a certain number of points to enter into into that uh, into that approach. So when you think about the United States, this role that a company like Microsoft has for sponsoring H-1B workers is similar. It is a very powerful role. And it's a role that uh, has at times helped our country a lot. It's also a role that has had its, uh, its liabilities or it, its challenges. Uh, in the book, I use the, the classic 1980s uh, song, uh, Every Rose Has Its Thorn uh, by, by Poison, uh, to, you know, to talk about like, you know, you have this- Classic ro- culture reference. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you can age discriminate based upon <laughs> that, that culture reference. Um, but you have, the, you have the power that an employer-driven system can bring. For example, a company is going to be able to screen on things like, will he work well on a team? You know, how, you know, is she uh, going to, you know, to be a creative person? Stuff that's very hard for a, um, a government-driven system to ever capture. Or how do we think about a bachelor's degree in data science today relative to a PhD in nuclear physics? Mm. The PhD in nuclear physics will, will get much higher points on the score, but an employer may say, this is actually where the skills gap is right now. That's who, that's who we, uh, we, we need to bring in. So the United States has this system. And if I thought about what are the, the biggest challenges that we face right now, one, within the system itself, we are, for our employment-based purposes, very crude in the allocation. Uh, we, like uh, the H-1B is the easiest example. Uh, every year, there's 85,000 H-1Bs, uh, uh, visas that are available. Uh, during the first couple of days of the, of the process, we get more than 300,000 applications. Oh, goodness. And so our, our approach at that point is to allocate them via lottery. And you kind of think about if, if, if talent is the world's most precious resource and if there are every use from uh, I can come in and I can do code testing all the way up to I have very specialized skills in artificial intelligence that can really help a U.S. company take a leading edge in this spot. Both those uh, applicants get the, same, uh, get the same number of draws out of the lottery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can be much better about how we allocate those, uh, those visas and opportunities. There's other things that we could talk about if, if we'd like uh, with the time permitting about better school-to-work transitions because we, uh, we increasingly have a, a um, the U.S. universities graduating a lot of foreign students who want to enter the job market. But it's kind of like a very big pipe going into a very small pipe. Mm. There's not enough sort of room for the demand right now. And so we put all these sort of little band-aids like OPT mm. mm-hmm. around, um, around the two different pipes. But we're, we're kind of busting at the seams uh, for making this. But I guess the, the, the biggest thing that I would like to, to highlight right now when you come to the current mood is just that the, the rhetoric of immigration in this country is very damaging at the moment. 
Uh, and it, it's not even what has happened in policy. It's just the general perspective or security that people abroad feel about coming to the United States. Because high school migration, in the end, it's one that these people have multiple choices you sure. know, uh, in terms of where they want to locate. And if you think about where you're going to go to school uh, and hopefully into the job market or where you're going to found your company or where you're going to take that sort of first job after you've gotten your Ph.D., What's really important in those settings is uh, stability, uh, some understanding of like, when I make this investment, what are, what are going to be the rewards that I will be able to experience uh, in, in the future? Just like if you're a company, you would delay on making that big chemical uh, you know, manufacturing plant investment if there's a lot of economic turbulence. Likewise, if you're a, a foreign-born, um, you know, talented person looking around, your willingness to make that investment in us is going to be much less given this. And so a consequence of that means that everything from the, uh, like the travel ban or just the fiery rhetoric uh, that can exist, even if it's not about high school immigration, can mean that talented people are looking uh, elsewhere. So I'd really, uh, I hope that we can... Um, that we can work to, to change that rhetoric. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it's a big challenge right now, but, it, but it's vitally important. We've already seen in applications to professional schools declines over the last year in terms of the overseas applicants. Mm. And there's a worry that we're sort of losing this luster uh, in, in the eyes of, of, of talented people. You know, I think um, we should send a, a link to this podcast and your book to Washington um, and, uh, and, and well, highlight. if you have an email list for the whole city, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm willing to, to join you. Cause I that. think they need it. You know, I, I, people, people, I think lose sight of the, the economic impact that you are highlighting yeah. in, in your book. I mean, the, the a key focus of your book is the economic yeah. impact of, of all these high skill, um, yeah. uh, immigrants and that gets lost in yeah. the fiery rhetoric. But, but let me, let me make one kind of side comment on here that before we go though, sure. is that people will be very surprised when they pick up the book that, that President Trump plays a very small role in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, he's mentioned in the preface, he comes in a couple of places, and then the last chapter uh, talks about this rhetoric. But most of the challenges, as well as also economic opportunities the book describes, though they have been a, a building up and accumulating over 15 years. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a, a system that's been basically stuck in the mud since about 2004. Yeah. that really needs to be updated and overhauled in, in ways that, regardless of who won the 2016 election, sure. we would be facing this challenge. Sure. Uh, the rhetoric is just kind of the thing that might, you know, overall tip the balance in ways that we, um, that, that would be very disadvantaged for our country. I often say that high-skilled migration and its impact for the United States has been in spite of our immigration system rather than because of. Hmm. And what's important about that is, the U.S. and my my wife was uh, immigrated to the United States, mm. and so I was with her through both when she had a, a student exchange visa, then she was on an H-1B. Ultimately, she got her green card uh, through marriage to me. Lucky her. <laughs> uh, <or laughs> she unlucky. got so much yeah, more yeah, than yeah, a green exactly. card. Uh, and then has become a citizen uh, along the way. Uh, and having gone through that process with her, I can say that the U.S. immigration system has never been user-friendly. Like, it's never been something that uh, that you really just say, wow, this is a pleasure to uh, to work with. Uh, and I sometimes in class even show the U.S.'s webpage, and then I show Canada's webpage. 
And Canon's webpage, you know, has these lovely people like with their headsets that, you know, are yeah. ready to take your call sure. at that moment. Smiling. Like, yeah, they, they guarantee two week turnaround times. It's really like a marketing blitz, whereas the US webpage is, is not that. But what's important is always people are willing to make those type of investments or go through a process that's less than user friendly if on the other end they're guaranteed you know, or have reasonable assurance that they're going to be able to do great things. Mm -hmm. And I think where we feel this tension right now is that there, there's been a lot of questions about that. You know, is that really going to be there uh, in, in the future? So, so let's, let's, um, let's talk about the future uh, as, as we wrap up uh, the conversation. And um, like, like you started this conversation, I, I am also optimistic about the future. I choose to believe that there's more positive than negative that's going to come. Let's let's fast forward five years. Um, it's it's kind of fun to try to predict the future because no one can really hold us accountable. Let's imagine we are we are sitting here five years from now and we're looking back and we're we're talking about the greatest changes in the way organizations and talent interact. Um, what what would you say will be one of one of the greatest and most positive? changes in how organizations and talent are interacting. Yeah, I look to the future, and I'm going to add a few more years to it to, to go to 2030, okay. Uh, okay. just because that's the, the date that I have the, the, these sort of statistics that I'll, that I'll cite here a little bit. So one of the, the, I don't know what this future organization is going to look like, but where the book kind of leaves off on the business side is talking about two tensions that we're going to see future organizations uh, managing. One is that the, the sort of development of the talent clusters and the things that we've talked about in this podcast with the Chinese uh, and Indian invention in Silicon Valley and so forth, those trends show no sign of slowing down. Uh, and they've been going on for 40 years. And when I sort of show people the graphs, there's not a really much of a blip anywhere on them. But we've had wars. We've had 9-11. We've had a great recession. We've had so many things that buffeted those. But these talent clusters only seem to be becoming more important. And businesses are going to have to think about how do I access and build the information there. But on the opposite side, we look out at demographic projections, and some of them will also make your head turn around. Hmm. In 2030, and this is why I picked that date, sure. it's estimated that 50% uh, of young college graduates, 25 to 34 years old, 50%, uh, will be living in either India or China. Wow. And Western Europe and North America will wait for it, they're going to be accumulated 18%. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And when, you know, when I came to Harvard, uh, Western Europe and North America would have been a majority. Like, and it wasn't that long ago. So we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, sort of global collaborative teams uh, in, in the work of, of, of gig uh, across mm -hmm. borders, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the rise of digital labor in new ways. Uh, any large company, in my conjecture, is also any medium to even uh, above, slightly above small company, mm -hmm. is going to have to be thinking about both what are they thinking about for understanding what's happening in the traditional places like a, a London or, or a Paris or, or a Boston, but also how are they going to bridge across those gaps. And at the end, for many business leaders, it, it, it's going to have to come down to thinking about distance inside their company. 
Hmm. There's, there's always a question about where you put distance. And when you see someone like GE say, we're moving our headquarters into downtown Boston, or we're going to, you know, someone say, we're going to open up an R&D lab uh, in, in one of these uh, uh, clusters. What they're really telling you is that it's important for them to minimize the distance between where this knowledge is emerging uh, and the people that are there. Sure. But they're implicitly willing to add in distance that, that in, inside the organization internally. Uh, because the beautiful thing about that old suburban office park was that everyone was all kind of in the same parking right. lot and, you know, in the Lived same building. nearby, maybe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the organization of the future, I think, is going to be increasingly trying to manage these internal distances that are between where their rank and file talent is, where their sort of leading uh, decision makers are, where their talented clusters are, and, and, and similar. Okay. Well, you are now on the record, Bill. So we'll be back here yes. at 2030 to, uh, to see how, how right you were. Um, well, thank you, Bill. Uh, for, for folks interested in learning more about Bill's work on high-skill immigration, uh, you can find his book, The Gift of Global Talent, on Amazon. Bill, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for joining us on Radically Agile. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalan, the go-to podcast for interpreting the dramatic changes underway in the world of work. Please visit agileworkforce.com or email us at radical at gocatalan.com to join the conversation.